It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. Preparing? Wanting to rebel against me. <laughs> I, I'm just beach balling. Everything is frozen. What on earth? Now oh, it says live. it's streaming. Yeah, now it says it's streaming live. <laughs> I, I want you to know, Dr. Tristan Engels, this is a professional podcast, and I'm glad you're here. I, I swear it is. Just some, some technical challenges tonight. Uh, I've had right my there. fair share. <laughs> She is Dr. Tristan Engels. I am James Van Osel. This is Car Cone Carne. Welcome to Friday night. Uh, Dr. Tristan Engels wrote a book uh, released end of last year. Uh, very recently, we oh we have the visual aid there. It is the power of truth, the I life of Louis R. Vitulo. Vitulo. Vitulo, and the legacy of the rape kit. Your grandfather is Louis R. Vitulo. Mm -hmm. He created the rape kit. Yeah, I mean, he was. What what a what a landmark thing yeah. to have have uh, in, in the family yeah absolutely have. so he let, was let's start there so just to kind of gain a, a baseline understanding for people listening and watching what is the rape kit so the rape kit is the, a standardized evidence collection kit that's used in instances of sexual assaults you have to be certified a forensic nurse or a forensically certified um, doctor or pa to actually complete the kit and it just collects DNA and it's all, it's all compartmentalized in the kit itself. It's all labeled, it's all sealed so that there's no tampering, there's no cross-contamination. And then the kit itself also has a tamper seal on it. There's sign off from law enforcement, sign off from the, from the physician or the nurse who did the kit. There's a release from the actual assault victim. And then it's handed over to law enforcement to process so that they can get some DNA from that and then ideally find a match to figure out who the offender was. So and this yeah. was 1978. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happened before the rape kit? So before the rape kit, first, I want to preface by saying that he was a co-creator in this. It actually came about because there was a victim. Her name was Martha Goddard. She goes by Marty. She was a sexual assault victim. And she, you know, this is all Chicago, you know, based. So it all started there. Um, and she, so she was a victim of sexual assault. She notified law enforcement and she, to her recollection and how she kind of shared this was that law enforcement dismissed her accounts because she didn't appear as distressed enough as they would think for somebody who would have just gotten assaulted. So they dismissed her. There was no formal investigation. There was no real standardized way that they handled that. And so she was, you know, obviously very affected by that as one would be. And so she kind of went on this crusade of, of championing for, for survivors of assault. And she created, um, uh, an organization called the Citizens Committee for Victim Assistance. And from there, she started to really talk with um, law enforcement, attorneys, et cetera, to try to figure out how can we, how can we reel this in and make this better? And so she stumbled across, across my grandfather, who happened to be a, a sergeant for the Chicago Police Department. And he was also the chief of the crime lab. So he kind of, you know, transitioned into that role. And at the time he was becoming really renowned for being a forensic expert because he'd worked on some pretty 
historic cases like uh, Richard Spack by that time. And he was in Time Magazine and he had uh, co-authored and written some books and was lecturing and helping to standardize just crime scene investigation in general. So when she got word of him, she approached him and together they kind of like sat down. She shared her story. She shared her thoughts, her ideas. And then he took his forensic experience and his experience with law enforcement and working with district attorneys and together they just they created the kit and um it's it was very it was it was so new for its time like it was revolutionary for its time it was ahead of its time really um and the kit came out it was actually named after my grandfather the initial kit was the vitulo evidence collection kit because he was the forensic expert he'd had all the design features um, he made sure that, you know, things were compartmentalized appropriately, that it was reliable and valid and all of that. And then he, the copyrights were given to her organization, the Citizens Committee of, for Victim Assistance. All right. That out of the way, let's talk about your papa. I mean, I have two takeaways from your book. There are more takeaways. My two big takeaways. <laughs> uh, one we'll get to is there's a shocking backlog. I had no idea until I really dove into your book what kind of backlog exists of untested or unprocessed rape kits. The other thing I took away is what a remarkable influential guy this was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a love letter to him and his work and his influence. I mean, you, as it stands right now, you are a clinical forensic psychologist. I've got to think that is largely inspired by this man. Yeah, it's hugely inspired by him. <laughs> yeah, he was um, he was definitely revolutionary in his time. He, he was such a big family man, and he and I had such a huge bond growing up. I was so, we were so close to one another. Um, we did so much together. I spent so much time with him, and he, you know, I, when I firm the there's stories about that in the book, and I don't want to give too much of it away, but. I was about seven or eight when I figured out kind of how big of a deal he was. And um, it was when an officer and him, they introduced each other and the so officer this was, was the like road, shocked. This was the roadside story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Coming back from camp, uh, fishing from Wisconsin. They, they yeah. basically <laughs> reacted to him like he was Mick Jack. Like, he, yeah, right. Exactly. And I'm all like, Papa, <laughs> I was like, this guy was just telling fart jokes on the way over like him. <laughs> So, and I was really young, so my mom couldn't like really explain to me where this was coming from at the time. I mean, I got a little bit of an overview, but I didn't quite know exactly what it was that made him so recognizable in law enforcement. Um, but as I got older and I got to talk with him, you know, he reflected on his work and just how difficult it had been. And he never really wanted a claim for this particularly, because I think there's a part of him that like, why did we even need to get here to begin with? Like, why did we have to, to create this? This shouldn't even be a problem. But then secondly, you know, he thinks um, we're, we're doing all of this. We're con contributing to society to try to help reduce the prevalence of these things. But yet what he found was that it just continued. And that oftentimes they're testing some or they're, or they're testing ballistics or they're testing DNA just in any kind of crime. And they're seeing the same people coming through the system over and over again. And so like the one thing that he mentioned to me that sort of lingered for him is that he just did never understood why they weren't deterred by consequence and that no matter what he did, and it just seemed to continue. And so that always stuck with me. And that's what led me into my 
fields. And so I try to help reduce recidivism, as we call it, which is the tendency for reoffending. So I, I was going to save a related question for later, but since we're on, on the topic, can these types of criminals, the, these perpetrators of sexual assault, can they be reformed? I, I feel like we don't hear any stories along those yeah, lines. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a mixed bag. There's, there's, they're definitely not curable. If, I mean, it's, if it's a crime related to an undiagnosed mental illness that, you know, they, maybe they were psychotic and acute psychosis. And sometimes during acute psychosis, they're hypersexualized and, you know, they're not in their right mind. And if they're on medication and they're stabilized, there's a, there's less of a risk. But when, but the bit, the best way of predicting future risk is by assessing the history of it. So if there's a history of consistent crime or consistent predatory behavior, the likelihood that they're fully reformed or not a threat to society decreases. So it's really about um, can we get them to an understanding and finding replacement behaviors or other coping mechanisms where they could actually, if they are paroled or released, be um, appropriate for supervision and community. A lot of the times that's not the case, but you know, there are some, there are very few where you do see some success in, in sexual crimes. All right. Let's go back to Papa. For a okay. Louis Arvatillo. Yes. Uh, you kind of hinted toward this. I mean, right out of the gate in the beginning of the book, we learned that he's a no bullshit, very <laughs> modest guy. I mean, here's a guy who said he didn't want a funeral, didn't want a memorial service. He just, he was, he seemed like a textbook Midwesterner is what he seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he's very private and he was no nonsense. He definitely would no filter. He'll tell you how, what he thought, how he felt no matter what. I mean, watching him, watching the Chicago bears, it's like, you're like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, you know? you know? So he's definitely Midwesterner through and through. Um, yeah, he, and he didn't like, you know, he didn't really like public publicizing himself. And the, the, the photo here actually was, um, I think it was in the Chicago star, which is the Chicago police department's magazine. And that was because they, you know, obviously the Chicago police department was like, look at what we're doing and they want to put it out there. And so he takes this photo and then he hides it in his den. <laughs> he doesn't want it out there. He doesn't really want anyone to see it except, you know, now I have, you know, those, those photos, those timeless photos on my own. You mentioned the picture from Time Magazine. It's him with a knife that was used by Richard Speck. It, it, is it prominent in your home? Yes, it's always prominent. It's actually got this really nice little spot that has its own lighting on it. It almost looks like a little cathedral in this one part of my kitchen. It's got like some of his ashes next to it. Yeah, it's always in like a central location at my home. I don't have any trouble showing him off. <laughs> oh, sure. One of my one of my lasting memories of Richard Speck is those weird videos shot inside the prison. Yes. And this is perhaps a bit off topic, but I guess it's not considering what you do and what you wrote about this. This culture we have of elevating serial killers and these these violent criminals into almost celebrity status. Where does that come from? How, why does that even exist? I think people are interested in just the er erratic parts of it. it. We're so used to like the mundane aspects of life. And then we see these outliers that we're just kind of like curious about. And it's almost, 
I don't, you know, it's just, it's almost like rubbernecking when you're driving on a, on a freeway and you see this accident and then you're, you're always stopping and slow, well, not me, but most people stop, they slow down and they're like rubbernecking to see. But when you've kind of been in the throes of it, it's just, you know, it's just nothing. But for most people, they're just, you know, very curious about this. They want to know more. And it's like entertainment value in a way. In the book, once the rape kit was out in the world and, and used, Chapter six is the one I, I think that stuck with me the most, the process. You talk about just the, the, the struggle that victims go through, the, yeah. the emotional part of it. And it, it's stuff we don't think about, but there's a lot, just, just to get all the evidence for the rape kit, there's a lot that those victims have to go through. And they're, they've been victimized. There's PTSD or, or shell shock back in the early days, which you right, right. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> It just the lack of emotional support during the process is something that, yeah, is that something that's changing or, or can be changed? Yeah, it's um from well, Martha. One thing that Martha did is she actually back in the late 1970s, her and my grandfather Papa would get put together some materials to help educate medical professionals and help educate just the public and the communities, and they would put together a pamphlet that would give support. Um, organizations or numbers or places to go post trauma. Um, but yeah, the actual experience itself is it can take six to seven hours of, of just an examination alone. They're taking pictures, they're swabbing, they're combing, they're, they're checking your, your clothing. They're, you know, they're doing basically taking everything from you. So you've already been victimized and now you're, you're, you're going through this process again, that's extremely just violating like your space in general. And, you know, yeah, there's in the past, there's never really been sort of like a crisis evaluator or anybody as a part of that process. And I don't know, it varies by state, but ideally what they're having now is with these forensically trained nurses, they're also getting some of that crisis component with that so that they can be a little bit more um, tender and, you know, ginger with this process. It's very, yeah, it's grueling. It's really, it, your body's the crime scene, you know? Right. Which uh, that, that, that says it all right there. The thing that, the, the other lasting impression besides the remarkable man that your grandfather was the massive volume of rape kits that have yet to be processed. I had no idea. You mentioned Kamala Harris was the first politician to really say something about this. Mm -hmm. I was shocked by it. And I, I was relieved to know that it, it wasn't necessarily my ignorance of everything. You were surprised to learn about this too. Yeah. I, yeah. In 2015, a CNN reporter reached out to me to do an interview regarding a piece that she was writing about the backlog. She actually spoke with me and she spoke with Martha Goddard. And this is what I learned. Like I, I knew that there was a little bit of it just because when, you know, if you've got a serial rapist, not just a, you know, opportunistic individual who, who's, who sexually assaults somebody, generally that's somebody, you know, but if you've got a serial rapist, they target mostly people they don't know. And so when you've got back, especially in the 19th, late 1970s, early 80s, you, you're getting assaulted by somebody out of the blue. You don't know who they are. They know who you are. They've probably been, you know, doing some reconnaissance. I mean, if we look at like the Golden State Killer or, you know, Samuel Little, who is just the prolific serial killer um, that was announced by the FBI or the Grim Sleeper, like they know you, but you don't know them. They're specifically targeting, you know, disenfranchised people or people 
they don't know. So you've, they get assaulted and then they seek, they, they seek law enforcement. They have a rape kit done, but then at the back then there was no real like DNA database. So if you don't know who the person is, then how do you get the other part of the DNA to secure the match? So that's how the backlog started back in that day. So we knew that there was some of that that existed, but there was no reason for that to still be in place now. So when I got this call to do this interview, I was actually being educated by the reporter <laughs> to give a response to this. And I'm thinking, my gosh, how much? And it was estimated to be over 400,000 nationwide. And that was just an estimate that had never been tested. They were still sitting on shelves and or evidence lockers all across our nation. And, um, you know, there's no reason for it now. And the only things that they can identify was there was funding issues because to open up a cold case, it's an average of 40 hours for an investigator to spend on just that one case. And if you've already got, you know, your staffing budget fulfilled and your, your investigators are all working on ballistics and all these other you know, crimes and investigation, they don't have the time or the manpower or the money to really put towards that. So it just kept growing. And it was really shocking. It was really shocking to hear so, that. So what's the solution? Is it a squeaky wheel sort of thing where you just have to make enough noise that a cold case gets reopened? Yeah. So this, interestingly, in 2015, after this, um, this interview happened and they, you know, CNN, you know, posted the article and, and, came out with this investigative report, um, they followed up. They were kind of monitoring it for three, three years or so. And in 2018, they did a follow-up report where they discovered that law enforcement agencies in response to this had started to purge and destroy some of these kits instead of testing them to sort of cover it up. And some of them hadn't even passed, passed the statute of limitations. So prosecution still could have occurred. So there's a host of different reasons of why this is happening. And I think the problem is, yeah, you got to be a squeaky wheel. And, you know, there's, there's organizations like the Joyful Heart Foundation, with, who's spearheaded by Mariska Hargitay from Law and Order SVU, whose aim is to fundraise to help, to help, you know, get the money to fund the testing of these kits so that we can clear the backlog. And then it's up to the agencies to then allocate their budgets appropriately to continue to keep up with it going forward. So it's, there's a lot of different layers there, but squeaky, being a squeaky wheel needs to happen for sure. And it just, the more you think about the situation and the more you realize there are so many victims of these crimes who've never seen seen this come to any kind of legal closure, closure. Mm -hmm. yeah it's ha having to live with that on top of everything else i that's, that's yeah and to have gone through like we talked about the grueling process of providing yeah. that dna evidence and and allowing law enforcement to get what it needs to to actually close this case and then for it to not be even tested is appalling and you know the other option they'll say is you know, you can test it yourself if you want, but then it takes the victim having to pay $1,000 to $1,500 to have their own tit, uh, kit tested. And then, and then what, you know, and then will they follow up? Do they have the manpower to do it? You know? So, yeah. It's if your grandfather, Louis Arvatillo was on that call with CNN in that interview, what would his reaction have been? <laughs> there are probably be some expletives. <laughs> Um, because it seems like a slap in the face. To it, yeah. Yeah. I think also too, 
um, just knowing him and knowing his experiences in law enforcement and knowing that corruption in law enforcement is just prevalent no matter what you do. The fact that they were, some of them were purged, that would probably not shock him. And that's the thing. But I mean, he'd be upset, but he'd probably not be surprised. And that's the sad part. When did you know you wanted to do this for a living? When, when did, was it rifling through his file cabinets? You thought, Oh, I, I want to have my own file cabinets with pictures of severed heads. And, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, you know, he, when he passed away, he passed away from a heart attack in 2006 and, um, it like within that first few weeks, my Nana was still alive and we were inundated with cards, letters, just from all over the country, from, from people who had either worked with him or who were able to get closure and who were able to prosecute their rapist because of him and Martha. I don't want to leave Martha out. I just don't want to speak for her because I don't know her very well. But um, in that moment, I was, we were going through them. We were trying to help my Nana sort them. And then there's all these newspaper articles. The mayor dedicated a day for him and the, the Chicago police department had their, his personnel file, like, delivered to us, like hand delivered to us and, you know, had a day for him. And, um, at that moment I was thinking to myself, my goodness, these, this, these are people that remember him from 30 plus years ago. And he's, they're still a part of like, he's still a part of their heart. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm working in corporate Walgreens corporate, (laughs) looking at cubicles all day. And I'm I'm like, this is, I want to do more with that. Like this is living, like this is leaving behind the world a little better than you found it. And so that really inspired me to then kind of put my foot forward and find a new path, one that I could hopefully make him proud of. So, yeah. You you mentioned that philosophy in the book too. leave the world better than the way you found it. That's I think we can all agree. That's a fine ethic or or value to carry Mm -hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about his career, you included a photocopy of his resume in the book. Uh, it is so accomplished. I wanted to, I wanted to delete my LinkedIn profile after looking at that. <laughs> I have nothing I know. To offer. <laughs> Same. When I was looking at it, I'm like, I couldn't even pronounce some of the things that he learned, like part of physical, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? I, like, I had to Google some of it. Yeah, it was, an, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> So fascinating guy. And without giving away too many more details, uh, they're all in this wonderful book, The Power of Truth, The Life of Louis Arvatolo and the Legacy of the Rape Kit. I, it's, it's eye-opening in many respects, a lot of respects we covered. It's an important book. You mentioned Me Too uh, at, at the beginning of the book, which I, I think puts some wind under the sails mm-hmm. of, of awareness mm-hmm. for getting these these rape kits processed and, and exactly. talked about. Yeah. And I think it's another, you know, there's some more issues there too, that we've discovered is that there's certain, you know, hospitals in different States where they don't even have forensically trained staff to conduct the kits. And so what we're finding is, is you know, victims are going there to give the evidence and to have an exam and they're being turned away. And then where did they go? So there's legislation that needs to happen there too. Um, there's a lot that's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Agreed. All right. Dr. Tristan Engels, thank you for joining me tonight. And uh, thanks for having me. The book, the book is available. Uh, please read it. It is timely. It is important. It is 
Yep. And portion of the proceeds go towards the cause. So you get to, you know, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. 